spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Also on the line from Italy, we have Luigi De Vecchi, who is a senior banker at Citigroup. Today, we'll be talking about the Chinese incursion into financial services in Europe as the latest battle for control of Novo Banco in Portugal hots up. Secondly, we'll be looking at Lloyds and RBS and the latest plans by the government to sell off their stake. And finally, a look at the US mortgage market as non-bank lenders go into the ascendancy over banks. First, though, to that topic of Chinese financial groups and their interest in European banks. Martin, Nova Banco, which is the good bit of the former Besh franchise in Portugal, it seems that the bidding for that business is unofficially at least down to two, and they're both Chinese bidders. The two leading contenders are certainly the two Chinese groups, from what we hear. If either Fosun International or Anbang Insurance, which are the two Chinese groups bidding for Nova Banco, if either of them do end up winning this deal, paying a price of more than 4 billion euros for, as you said, the good bank that was carved out of the wreckage of Banco Espirito Santo, then it would represent the biggest investment by a Chinese group in Europe's financial services industry ever. You know, it's quite significant um, yeah. what's happening here. Even though we're talking about Portugal, which is a relatively small market, obviously, symbolically, it's quite a big deal. Let me just go to Luigi De Vecchi, who joined us on the line from Italy. Luigi, thanks very much for sparing the time. What is the big picture here? This isn't the first interest that Chinese financial companies have shown in uh, potential European acquisitions. Paint the picture for us a bit more broadly. Sure. Well, I think you're absolutely right. This is not the first wave of Chinese interest in uh, especially Southern Europe. I would say that since the beginning of the crisis, we have seen American investors in general shy away from Southern Europe, and Chinese interest really in a series of attempts initially and then more formally in the last uh, couple of years, they've really come forward with a very clear strategic objective, which is to take advantage of what is, I believe, a unique geopolitical opportunity to essentially find a way to invest in what they perceive as a relatively cheap environment when essentially they are now wanted politically and they are in a position where they can acquire either minority interest, as we have seen in a few instances, or controlling interest in others. In particular, I think in relation to banks, As you say, this would be the largest investment to date, but it is true that they have been looking for some time. And you have to put this into the context of a world that for European banks is quite complicated at the moment with the ECB regulator that is still not clear how it will treat new acquisitions. 
and therefore they can take advantage of that opportunity, which again is not a window that will be there forever. And again, they can potentially acquire control of some of these assets. So there's no question in your mind that these are strategic deals rather than short-term opportunism for financial gain. In that light, which other deals would you highlight as having been struck in that way? I think if you look really across Southern Europe, you could put into that context the acquisition of the Piraeus port by Chinese interest. In Portugal, there has been investment in utilities in the past, uh, minority interest. In Italy, there has been a sizable investment in a holding company of the electricity and gas grid. You know, this was an investment of north of $2.5 billion. And again, I can tell you that there has been quite a few different kinds of Chinese investors, ranging from some of the very successful Shanghai groups, uh, like Fuzun is an example, to state-owned corporations really looking at uh, opportunities in Southern Europe. And this trend, I think, will continue because Chinese are seeing China slow down. And again, they're seeing uh, Europe at the moment being an attractive valuation uh, environment uh, where geopolitically they have uh, the backing they feel they need before they make investments. Yeah, Martin, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I I think it's right also to say that the Chinese, particularly in in Portugal, where a lot of Chinese investment has has focused, they see some of these European countries like Portugal as a gateway to other emerging markets, particularly for Portugal has strong links with Angola and Brazil and some of the Latin American countries. And so buying a bank like uh, Novo Banco could give them access to those markets as well as being a foothold to expand into Europe. And Luigi, a final point from you. This has obviously been a slow burn, if you like, but it does remind me of the immediate post-crisis period where we saw one of the biggest other deals in the financial services sector when Ping An came in and bought a big chunk of Fortis, which didn't go so well. No, that's right. I think that, um, as always with these situations, the first situations are always the most complicated. I think Chinese interests have been looking at Southern Europe in particular. That obviously was a different situation for some time. I think they've learned from some of the initial, call it, uh, quote-unquote, mistakes. I remember a situation where I sold a company to Chinese interest, and I remember at that time this was a mid-sized company in the sort of $500 million business. It was a small Italian engineering company where they paid at the time a very significant and high multiple. I think they've learned since. I mean, we've seen uh, the recent acquisitions they have announced of the controlling interest in uh, Pirelli where essentially they're allowing the uh, Italian management to run the combined global company. It's been obviously the Volvo uh, situation. So I think they have evolved over the course of the last few years. And I have come to think of this really as a geopolitical move. I I called it in a different uh, situation, an equivalent plan to the one that the Americans after Second World War put together for Europe, you know, the, the famous Marshall Plan. I'm really seeing some of the similar trends here where there is a geopolitical backing and there is a long-term interest. The Chinese prefer to talk about the silk route that they feel has always been in place between Europe and the Far East, and they're effectively rebuilding that tie that has been there for centuries. Uh, I, you know, Whichever way you look at it, this is a trend that is there to continue, in my view. And there will be, as you say, some mistakes, no question, but uh, there is a clear trend in this direction. And a banking deal like this would just be another part of the jigsaw puzzle of broader acquisitions in important areas of what could more broadly be described as infrastructure investment. I believe so. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. 
Luigi, thank you very much for joining us. Let's move on to our second topic for the day. The government plans in the UK to sell off more of the shareholdings in Lloyds and RBS. Emma, Lloyds, I can't remember how much the government has now in Lloyds, is about 19%, I think, but they're accelerating plans to sell the rest of that. Yeah, so the government has 19% stake still, which amounts to about £13.6 billion. And the government has now confirmed that it will offer a retail-specific share sale within the next 12 months. It will also extend its sort of drip-feeding programme, whereby it releases shares into the market for another six months. So that will go on until December. So this retail share offer essentially confirms plans unveiled by David Cameron, where he said before the election that he hopes to offer £4 billion worth of shares to retail investors as part of a broader plan to offload £9 billion of its stake this year. So it's conceivable that the shareholding could be gone within a year, I suppose. Yes, the chairman, Lord Blackwell, actually said that he hopes, and it's certainly possible, that the government could completely sell out of its stake within Lloyd's uh, within the next 12 months. So that is a certain possibility. And as part of the trading programme, the government still has the option of doing another institutional share sale as well as a retail share sale. So there are many levers it could pull to accelerate the rate at which it offloads its stake. Or maybe there'll be Chinese bidders for it. What about RBS? Martin, you broke a story the other day about a plan to start the RBS divestment as well. Yeah, we're expecting Chancellor George Osborne to lay out plans to start selling the government's 80% stake in RBS in next week's Mansion House speech the annual uh, address that the Chancellor gives to the the bankers and uh, financiers of the City of London. George Osborne said this a a couple of times before the general election and during the campaign, that the government feels that it's holding on to this stake is is, is actually holding the bank back. And um, really the only way that it's going to have any chance of getting its money back is by actually starting to sell down the shares and give the bank a bit more freedom and to create more liquidity in the stock. So Lloyd's has has been a a great success in terms of selling off more than half of the stake at a profit. And this drip feed program that Emma talked about has been remarkably successful. The shares have continued to go up as they've sold more than three and a half billion pounds of of shares. RBS is difficult, though. Um, Very different case. Shares are trading below £3.50. And the government's in price, the price they paid to bail out the bank in 2008, is over £5, just over £5. So they're a long way from that. And it's an open question. I mean, whether anybody thinks the government will ever get their money back on that. But I think unless they start selling it down, the government now feels that holding on to it and hoping that the share price will just magically rise to £5 is wishful thinking, especially as the bank has made losses for the last seven years. There's no prospect of them making a profit this year. They might return to profit next year, but they've got some big issues ahead of them, not least a multi-billion dollar fine they're expected to suffer for mis-selling US mortgage securities. They've got a competition investigation in the UK, and they're the dominant lender to small businesses, which is one of the key areas they're looking at. And there's also a lawsuit from their institutional shareholders who are suing over the government bailout, feeling that they were hard done by by that rights issue that led to the government taking the big and a massive, let's not forget, a massive and hugely costly restructuring of the bank to slice off huge parts of its investment bank and retreat from most international operations, shrinking it back to a very much a, a retail-focused, UK-focused bank, very much like Lloyd's, actually. So huge amounts of work still to be done at RBS, but the government 
want to capitalise on their election victory and the disarray that the late the opposition Labour Party find themselves in to press on with selling, albeit at a loss. I think you're right that you know it's pretty fanciful to think that any time soon they could get anywhere near the in price. So it, I suppose it just depends on um, on timing. With regards to Lloyd's, I mean, the government's in price there was 73.6p and the share is now trading at about 88p. So, I mean, it's a gain for the government in that sense and the taxpayer, but for RBS it's still some way off. And you can see the share prices between the two diverge from about 2012 and even more so since the start of this year. So as the government's accelerated its sell-off in Lloyd's and as, as the bank continues on its path to recovery. Yeah, I suppose once the RBS massive restructuring, as you say, is closer to completion, they might start to get some kind of re-rating. And, you know, if they get anywhere near the Lloyd's valuation of whatever it is, 1.5 times their book value, then, you know, maybe they get back to that. I mean, just the final point on this, you know, the one thing that's really helped the Lloyd's share price is the promise of a dividend. This used to be one of the biggest dividend payers in the FTSE. They've restarted the dividend at the start of this year, a token dividend, but and the promise of building that up. RBS still a little way from that. They've got to repay the dividend access share, which is this scheme they've got with the government before they're allowed to pay dividends to the rest of their shareholders. But once they've divested citizens, their US operations, then they will have many analysts predicting a quite a large excess capital position. And it may be a while before they pay a dividend, but they could theoretically start to return some capital through share buybacks as early as next year. And analysts are starting to get excited about that and the prospect of dividends. So from next year, if they make a profit next year and they start to return some of this excess capital at RBS and they get some of these big fines out of the way and the government starts to sell its shares, you could start to see how the story might change. But we're still at least a year away from that, I think. And I'm sure regulators will have something to say about returning capital. We should move on to our final topic for the day, a brief look at the US mortgage market, where um, interesting thing happened in the first part of this year. We saw non-bank lenders start to dominate a market which previously had been dominated by banks in this area of mortgages that are backed by the state-sponsored entities Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Martin, what is driving this inversion of the market? Well, as you've said, so-called shadow banks, these non-bank lenders, for the first time took a majority of share of the government-backed mortgages. 53% went to companies like Quicken Loans, PHH and LoanDepot.com. And that is, you know, a big jump, almost double their share from the same period two years ago. So what's happening here, people think, is that the big banks like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, uh, JP Morgan Chase are retreating because interest rates are very low, regulation is driving them out of this market or making it you know, more difficult for them to lend money to some of these customers. And the shadow banks benefit from the fact that they are much more likely regulated and that's because they don't have deposits. They take money through funds that institutional investors put money into funds and therefore they're considered asset managers rather than deposit-taking institutions, which are regulated very differently. So you're seeing some of these companies, which are not very well known globally, starting to challenge some of the big names in the market. But there is a concern as a result of this that uh, the lending quality is slipping and that some of these shadow banks are lending money to clients that are perhaps not as higher quality, which is a worry for the government in the US because these are government guaranteed mortgages. So if they turn out to be bad loans, then it's the taxpayer in the US through Fannie and Freddie that will ultimately pick up the tab. 
Well, let's hope we don't see a replay of the 2007-8 subprime crisis. We'll keep a close watch on that. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma here in the studio and Luigi Davecchi down the line from Citigroup in Italy. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy our FT Money podcast on the topic of personal finance. It's also a weekly podcast and you can find it on Wednesdays at ft.com slash podcasts. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.